Are you looking for truth from God's word that you can understand and apply to your life? You'll find it today on Make It Clear with Dr. Stan Pons, Bible teacher and president of Clarity Christian College, formerly known as Florida Bible College. Listen now as Stan makes it clear. Father, as we are here today gathered with fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, a part of your local and universal body of Christ, Lord, we thank you for that. We thank you that the greatest freedom that we'll ever enjoy, but at the same time hold in high esteem, and that is our freedom in Christ, our freedom from sin, our freedom from eternal damnation. So, Father, I thank you for that, but I also thank you that you have so privileged us, most of us, many of us, maybe even all of us, to be born in the United States of America and to enjoy today the privileges of the rich history and legacy that was provided for us uh, way before even our founding fathers. And then, Father, that we will dive into these seven principles and really own them in our hearts, celebrate them, proclaim them, teach them, and maybe even defend them. Now, Father, I pray this in Jesus' precious name and for your sake alone. Amen. All right, all that being said now, I know that this may, for some of you, you might think it's heading towards a political agenda. I am not really here trying to promote any political agenda. I'm not here trying to promote any particular party uh, or whatever part of a party you might have because now everything is fractioning as they're doing, and you'll probably agree with that. In a sense, when it's all over, if we go to heaven, all those party tags are going to blow off, and if you don't go to heaven, they'll burn off, and I'll leave that alone. So it's most important for us to really understand truth, and I'd rather give you truth than to give you any political uh, direction. Now, to contradict myself, and my staff likes to say Stan's a, you know, a person of contradictions at times, I do want you to know that I'm not uh, like an ostrich with my head in the sand. I live in the same world you do. I live not only in a, in a southern area where there's a lot more freedom than other parts of the country when I travel there, but we are heading toward an election year. And when we head into an election year, I like to speak more in terms of principles rather than parties. If you agree with that, can you say, uh-huh? Okay, we're not about principles now, not so much parties here, because uh, we can go all over the, the map with all of that. So since we are, I wanted to go back to say, what would be the foundations of our freedom? What are, what are the seven? Now, I have to be frank with you. You won't see a Bible chapter that'll give you seven. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. I could have given you 17. I could have given you 70 or 700 principles. But I'm trying to reduce it to like seven mountain peaks here. And we're only going to touch on the mountain peaks because I don't have a lot of time. These could be seven standalone sermons. But at the same time, I'm going to trust that it's like a pebble going into the pond, that when I give you that principle, you understand that those ripples are going to go from Genesis to Revelation, and you can study that all throughout Scripture. And I urge you to do that so you can understand even more, because Scripture is replete with this stuff. So there'll be seven of those. But I want you to know how important that is. So to set this up to let you know why foundational principles are important, I want you to go back in your mind for just a moment. Has there ever been someone in your life who has criticized you, challenged you, tried to give you advice because they thought you were going in the wrong direction? We all have. And you know the greatest king that Israel had ever known was King David. And I know that he went through the same thing. And he had some critics at a time that Israel was going through some tremendous political and somewhat religious unrest at the time. And so he had his friends, families, and critics like we do that challenged him. Well, David gave him a response, and I'm going to read it to you. You're welcome to follow along in your Bible, your electronic version. I'm going to be reading some scripture. If not, just jot it down, but go back. It's found in Psalm chapter 11, verses 1 through 7, and I'm going to slow down and read it to you, but just capture the ethos of all of this. Verse 1 says this. David is writing this now. It's put in scripture, so it's what God wanted us to know. He says, in the Lord I put my trust. That's a sermon in so many levels. Then he says to his critics, how can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? In other words, run away from all these problems. 
Ignore them. Deny them. And here's how he continues in his response to their question. He says, for look, the wicked bend their bow. They make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold. His eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, brimstone, and burning wind. And we know that here in Wyoming. Shall be a portion of their cup. And the last says this. For the Lord is righteous. He loves the righteous. His countenance beholds the upright. But the pivotal part of that passage is this. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? And so we who are now blood-bought, born-again believers in Christ, we have foundations. And I want to give you those seven foundations. And really, those foundations are built upon the rock, R-O-C, on Jesus Christ. So I want to give you these seven because they're so very, very, very important. Now, when I did this study, it came from Psalms. I read a particular commentator by the name of Joseph Alexander. That name might mean nothing to you, but he wrote three volumes on Psalms alone because it was so rich. And here's what he had to say in one little section of it, giving an illustration on freedom. Listen carefully. You might know this already. He writes, the year was 1833. The place was the island of Jamaica, the crown jewel colony of the British Empire. The issue was the abolition of slavery. Although the British really considered Jamaica an important resource to their empire, the parliament had voted now to set the nation free. A date was set. The island slaves waited for their freedom with great anticipation. Finally, the morning came. As the rays of sun announced the day, across the island could be heard this song. The Jamaicans in their own little Jamaica way were all singing and screaming and yelling and cheering, quote, free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. Now that's a true story that really did happen. And I can only imagine what it was like a few decades earlier, that all over the colonies we were hearing, we Americans were free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, we're free at last. So we're going to talk about freedom today. The Constitution declares this, to secure the blessing of liberty to ourselves and those who would follow. Now, when you hear the word liberty, I want you to think of the word freedom. The Gettysburg Address, Abraham Lincoln said this, that we were, you know this, conceived in liberty. In other words, we had our birth in liberty. And what should liberty do? If we're born in liberty, it should reproduce liberty and liberty and liberty and liberty and liberty and liberty towards the future. And really, as we talk about that, we can talk about that our liberty that was written down in all those important documents, the Declaration of Independence, the Bill of Rights, the Constitution, and other important documents, those are written by men. The real question is, is how biblical is it? Many years ago, when I was in San Antonio, I decided to do a, a year-long study on what I call the biblical basis of the United States Constitution. I studied it deeply. I read the authors. I went into history. I read the documents. I interviewed people. We put together a seminar, and I brought in some of the nation's finest scholars on the biblical basis of the United States Constitution. Now, that's not new to you, because we all think it goes back to the biblical basis of the Constitution that provides our freedom. One of those that I had come over was the mayor of San Antonio at the time. His name was... Cisneros, Dr. Henry Cisneros, who received his degree in constitutional law from Harvard. He was mayor. So I said, would you mind introducing my seminar? And he said, I'd be glad to. I said, I know you're busy. Can you just give me 10 minutes? 
He said, sure. So on the day of the seminar, I watched him putter up, drive up into our parking lot. He came in and he stood in the back, big, tall, Hispanic. And when I introduced him, he got up there and as mayor, he can do anything he wants. So he says, Dr. Pons gave me 10 minutes. He said, I've studied on the biblical basis of the constitution. So if you don't mind staying, I want to take about an hour to do this. You don't say no to the mayor of San Antonio and that he was bigger than me. All right. So he went up and here's what he said that was so profound. He said, we may argue on the spirituality of our founders. Some were deists. We may argue on whether or not they had slaves and did some things that today we would certainly disagree with and were in their own lives unbiblical. But the things we have a difficult time disagreeing with would be what they wrote. And he said, the question is, is how did this come together and become such a biblical basis for our Constitution? There's so much in our, and the style of our Constitution and the greater philosophy of our Constitution that can be found in Scripture. How, how did that all happen? And here's what he said. He said, you have to go back to what influenced these men. Now, many of them came from Europe. Some were already here. But those men were influenced by great biblical scholars, theologians, and ministers in Great Britain and overseas. They were influenced as children growing up, and so when they were putting this all together, somehow, it's like when you slice your wrists, you bleed. When you slice these men open, they bled what they were influenced by as they were growing up. Are, are you with me? So when they come together and they're writing this stuff, it's not like you're ever going to open the Bible and see chapter and verse. You probably won't even find a verse in there or a portion of a verse. But can any one of us deny the overwhelming emphasis of its biblicalness found in Scripture? We can't. You're going to find the value systems, the ethics that we have, honesty, decency, integrity. Remember this next thought. The self-government of man only works when man is self-governed by God. Okay, so let's go back to this then. So then from that came what is known as, kids, listen carefully, because this may be new lingo for you, but I want to explain what it is. It's called the Judeo-Christian ethic. Now, when it says the Judeo, what is a Judeo-Christian ethic? It means that the ethics or the values are Judeo-Christian. They use the word Judeo because those are the ethics and values that are found in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, we'll call it that. The Christian would be found in the New Testament. So you take Old Testament, Judeo, Christian, New Testament, you put it together, you have the Judeo-Christian ethic, which is now the value system of right and wrong and human decency found in the Bible. Now I'm going to give you another thought, contradiction. I don't want to leave you the impression, if you're just following this, that the New Testament is for Christians, the Old Testament are for Jews. If you know the Bible, we believe the Bible from cover to cover, don't we? From index to maps. I mean, from Genesis to Revelation, don't we? So we believe the whole Bible. Well, they're just saying that from cover to cover, there's an ethic in there that's found. So what I'd like to do is I would like to submit to you today seven principles that I believe that made our country great, could keep our country great, and could make sure that we provide a safe environment for our kids to grow up in that Judeo-Christian ethic. So if you um, want to, you could jot some notes down. It's on the back of your worship folder, a bulletin, little blanks to fill in so you can have them. So let me give you number one. And number one is simply this. It's called the dignity and sanctity of human life. I could start anywhere, but I would like to start at the beginning of humanity in the sense of the dignity and the sanctity of human life. So to say it more simply, it begins in the womb, it carries on in life as it fights against human trafficking and the abuse of fellow man. It comes to the end by working against euthanasia of mentally and physically challenged people.
as well as the aged. We fight for one thing, the dignity and the sanctity of human life. Exodus chapter 20, verse 13 simply says, King James, thou shalt not kill. And the original language is, you shall not murder. And anything apart from someone dying that you make that person die, that becomes murder. You take it to the New Testament, and it says, when the great commandment, love the Lord, and it says, love your neighbor. And that comes because we believe in the sanctity of human life. Our ministry really cares so much about that that a couple of years ago, and it's just been released, we put together a 30-minute movie called Traffic. We filmed it in central Georgia. While we were filming this, it's not a documentary, it's an actual show, a film. The NBC station in Macon put over a film crew and filmed us filming this new movie. The last day of filming, we found out 30 miles away in a locked barn in rural Georgia, they rescued 30 children from being trafficked. That went on the air in Macon. We then since decided we're going to submit this because it was so provocative of a movie. We're going to put it on the National and International Film Festival Award Committees. We won 15 awards on it because it is so hard driving, so edgy, anti-human trafficking. So from the womb to the grave, we believe in the dignity and the sanctity of human life. Any particular society that does not believe that will find themselves crumbling. And so our real belief in our freedoms has got to be based on what God says. And it goes back to the dignity and the sanctity of human life. Our kids need to know that. That's the peak of the mountain. Now I release you to go deeper in God's word and see that it goes from Genesis to Revelation. Let's go to principle number two in the foundation of our freedom. And that is this, the pres preservation of the traditional family. The preservation of the traditional family. If you'll allow me for just a moment, I'm going to read a passage of scripture to you. It's Genesis chapter 2, verse 21 through 24. It goes like this. It says, And the Lord, the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall on Adam, and he fell asleep. And he took one of his ribs. Then he closed up the flesh in its place. Then the rib which the Lord took from the man, he made into a woman. And he brought her to the man. And Adam said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, because she was taken out of a man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So in other words, what you're hearing here is basically a summary of what was already said earlier, that God created one man, one woman, that they were to be biologically different. They were to separate somewhat from family, somewhat from family. They were to establish a new traditional family. And then to them, he said, be fruitful in what? Multiply. And so he gave... And forgive me for being so practical. One set of plumbing here, another set of plumbing there, so that together children are made. If you agree with that, say, uh-huh. That's the traditional family that God has put together. That's what we defend. That's what we explain. Do you know that the entire basic future of all society depends upon one man, one woman, one father, one mother coming together and children are being born. He's instituted that. Once you remove God's definition for marriage and family, and they're no longer respected, it's at that time society almost becomes meaningless. And last is this, and I'm talking to some of you that are still a little bit further out and trying to discover what your position is on this. I'd like to simply leave you with this thought before I go to the next principle. If you look back with an open mind, an objective mind, I'll say it that way, 
and you do a historical study on the sociological nature of all of societies, plural, way back to the first early society, you will find that any society did not, that did not fully embrace the sanctity and the dignity of human life and the traditional family, all those societies, over time, crumbled and they become no more. And so that's why we need to uphold God's ultimate structure in this whole foundation for our freedom. That's principle number two. Let's go to principle number three now. Principle number three is having a national work ethic. A national work ethic. Now I'm going to give you one verse. And I don't like to proof text everything on one verse. So what I'm really doing is this. I'm taking the synthesis of all the verses, watch this, and all the illustrations and examples in scripture... And I'm going to reduce it to one selected verse. But this verse kind of says everything in one sentence. It's like I'm going to try to make it clear. Accurate, clear, and urgent. Here's the verse. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says this. For even when we were with you, Paul wrote to the Thessalonian church, we commanded you, if any will not work, neither shall he eat. Now as we're trying to sort out who do we help and how do we help and how much do we help and all of this kind of stuff... We cannot drift away from this one main principle. So as we're sorting this out, we need to stay as tethered as, as tightly as we can to this particular principle. If a person doesn't work, now you have to define what that might be in the condition of the situation. Neither shall that person eat. And you have to define that in the condition of a need and bring it up against the dignity of human life. You don't want people to starve to death. But you can't move so far away from it that all of a sudden what's actually happening and what the scripture says are so many miles apart the society begins to fail again. Are you with me so far? All right. Now, the question is, is um, do you think that our country, when it was first founded on that principle, that it was a good principle upon which we were founded? Do you agree with that? Yes or no? Do you do? Okay. So then I began to ask myself, all right, if we're going to do that today, wh where did the people that live that today got, get it from? They got it from their parents. Who did they get it from? Their parents. Who did they get it from? their generation. It, it, it's, a, it's a train all the way back. Now stay with me. If we break it or minimize it, reduce it, dilute it little by little by little in the future generations, two generations from now, you're going to see mom and dad and grandpa that don't have that work ethic. So what do you think the children, the grandchildren, and the great-grandchildren will have? They won't have that same work ethic. So now, I feel like if there's any society, let me say it differently, if there was any group of people that I'm speaking to that don't need this, it's you. You're Westerners. You know what true grit is. If you lived here long enough, if you're a legacy family, and I don't mean a legacy in the church necessarily, but if you're a senior saint, and you were born here, and your family was born here, you know all about what homesteading was like. You know what it was like by reading and the stories and the history that's just brought to you over and over and over again. How people from the east were looking for rural areas, a new beginning, a do-over, a new start, whatever it might be. And so they came out here and with blood, sweat, tears, and death, they formulated basically a new country. Now I say that because it's almost true. Carol and I travel a lot and so we were parked uh, just a couple days ago. And as we were parked in our, our tiny little RV, we don't have a big rig or anything... This other rig came in, and it was a rented one, and, and as we always are, we're very friendly, and when they're starting, do you need any help, can I help you, especially with those with rented RVs and know how to do this stuff. And the guy was real friendly, and after a while, his 
wife was um, helping him back it in, and she was so sweet. It wasn't like, get over here, you know what you're doing. You know, they always say, this is how you back it up and expect arguments. That's what it says in the manual. She was so sweet and so kind and all that. Then the kids spill out of the RV and they're like wide eye and all of this. And uh, so after a few conversations, um, I said, where are you from? He said, well, I'm in finance and we live on the Connecticut coast. I'm not defining if you're from Connecticut and all this. And she said, we decided we're going to do something wild and crazy. My husband had to talk me into it, but I was willing to do that. So we flew to Billings. We rented an RV and we did some of the parks. Today is our last day. We're going to the, uh, uh, what do you call it? The, uh, the show, the dinner show, and then the Bulls rodeo kind of thing. And then we leave early tomorrow morning. And I said, how do you like it? She says, I can't believe I'm in the United States of America. I've never experienced anything like this. And I said, that's true. The next morning, they're packing up, and there's more to this story, but I'm going to make this real brief. And she says, I can't believe. They said a prayer at the rodeo. They saluted the flag at the rodeo. They took their hats off at the rodeo. Some guys were saluting hands over their heart kind of thing. And I wanted to say, well, you know where you came from. But I didn't say that. But I did say this. I said, this is the national work ethic that you see alive and well on planet Earth. Now, I, when we, I was in Ikalaka, Montana last Sunday. I'm going to be in Bridger, Montana next Sunday. Farming, ranching, all of that. And in order to do this stuff, everybody's got to work, don't they? All right. So that's the work ethic. Whether you do it to get paid or you just do it to help other people, that's the work ethic that America had and it still needs to have. And you know, as I look at it, the Great Depression was a good example. My dad stood in lines and he did any kind of work that he did and he drove buses in Chicago. But there's also us now that are this age that we had to learn to pivot during the great, what I'm going to call, pandemic. All of us had to do something, and that's what made this country so good. Let me go to principle number four. The fourth one I think you'll agree with as well, and it's called the right to a God-centered education. The right to a God-centered education. Now, if you do have your Bibles, or if you want to look at it on your phone, I do encourage you to go to Deuteronomy chapter 6, 1 through 7, for I will read this to you. But you may want to mark some things, because I'm going to emphasize, emphasize some points in this. The right to a God-centered education. I'm going to read it to you, then I'm going to explain what this means, because of how important that it is. But you're seeing it begin to percolate to the top, but it also can kind of go into an anomaly if we're not careful. Here it is, Deuteronomy 6. It says, Now this is the commandment, and these are the statutes and judgments which the Lord your God has commanded to teach you. Now, when it says, this is the commandment, these are, he's referring to what was written already. He's also written to what's about to come. So he's basically saying the embodiment of truth, specifically what's happening at the time, but by extension to everything that's found in Scripture. So we could say this Judeo-Christian ethic, he says, is what you're supposed to do. You are to teach it and you are to observe it. Now, when it says observe in the Bible, it doesn't mean you stand back behind barriers and you watch all faithful. Observe means you observe by doing this. So he says, not only do you teach this, that means you actually do these things. So your job is to teach that to the next generation. Then it says, into the land you're crossing over to, that you may fear the Lord your God to keep his statutes, commandments, which I command you. But you're to teach them to your son and to your grandson. Let me pause for a moment. All this is in the masculine. And the reason it is, is because usually the men were the head of household. Now, I'm not going to be this where the men, the men are to be, you know, the speakers and the women are to be the hearers. We're not talking about that. 
What it is saying is the ultimate responsibility of the education of the family falls upon the dad. Now, he may delegate it to his wife, and together as a couple, he may, they may delegate to a, a, an educational system. But when it's all said and done, mom, if she's a single parent, dad, if he's a single parent, mom and dad, predominantly the dad ultimately, but the mom's actively involved, is responsible for that family and the education of it. And it comes back to this. Remember the Judeo-Christian ethic. He's saying this is what they need to know. Now let me kind of come up for air for just a moment. Does that mean that you only teach the Bible, no science and history and math and all this kind of stuff? Oh yes, teach all that. The point of the matter is all of those, though, need to be run through the grid of an inerrant, God-inspired, all-sufficient word of God, and it would not con contradict that Judeo-Christian ethic. Do you understand what I'm saying? Okay, now, how it's coming out into your world or my world is that all of a sudden over the last couple years, predominantly in this last year, and it's not over by any means yet, we're seeing now where you're hearing parents are taking back school boards and taking back school systems because they saw what was going on with their kids. Are you understanding what I'm saying? I will applaud that, but I want to give you one caveat. What we're seeing now is parents are recognizing, whoa, some of this has really gone so far off the rail and we've got to protect our kids. This is Joe Pons, and I want to thank you for listening to Make It Clear with the teaching of Dr. Stan Pons, founder of Make It Clear Ministries and president of Clarity Christian College. Make It Clear is dedicated to taking the Word of God with clarity into every person's world. It's the support of listeners like you who make the ministry of Make It Clear possible. You can provide your tax-deductible gift to Make It Clear online by going to makeitclear.org. That's makeitclear.org. Thank you for helping us make it clear. If you would like to have Dr. Pond speak at your church or event, please email us at tellmemore at makeitclear.org. That's tellmemore at makeitclear.org. Thank you, and remember to make it clear. <laughs>